Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, September 17th, 2010. All right, we're doing Friday Light again on Wednesday. I I know that confuses some of you. I apologize. It's necessary. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No one gets a pass, not even me. You, If, if you don't think that I'm saying or doing or teaching things that are in accord with the Word of God, then I get to have what I say and do compared to the Word of God. Ain't nobody get no pass, no how, no way, not even me. So uh, anyway, that's kind of another topic. I, I Listen, I, I needed to do Friday Light again today on uh, Wednesday because I've been busy behind the scenes, uh, not at liberty to discuss it, but uh, uh, let's just say that um, setting the record straight on a few things has been one of the necessary things that I've been doing today behind the scenes. As a result of it, we're going to be doing Friday Light. We're going to continue with our lecture series uh, delivered by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, uh, co-host of the White Horse Inn, as he uh, discusses Martin Chemnitz's book, The Two Natures in Christ. And uh, and so uh, this is going to be lecture number two as we listen to this uh, today. Keep in mind that... um, uh, this is a series that's going to take us a while, and if you haven't secured a copy of the book, The Two Natures in Christ, it behooves you to do so, that you, so that you can keep up and uh, and uh, at least be uh, you know in the know as to what it is that uh, Dr. Rosenblatt is uh, discussing during these lectures. Uh, this is consider this like a college level course, and so if you want to you know, get the full experience of what the education that's being uh, dished out here uh, on this lecture series on the two natures in Christ, you, you want to have the textbook. Now, if you don't have a copy of the book, you can uh, download a Kindle edition pretty easily by visiting fightingforthefaith.com. And on the left-hand side, you'll see a uh, a link there that'll take you to uh, to Amazon where you can actually purchase a Kindle version of it. And some of you are going, well, I don't, I don't want... Well, if you don't want to 
get a Kindle version of it. You can buy the hardcover version. There's options to buy the hardcover version there online, and I still think you can get it from CPH if you uh, don't have a copy of it. So that's another possibility. But that being the case, just want to let you know that uh, if you, it really would help you to follow along in the way you do that. Pick up a copy and uh, start reading. And the nice thing about the Kindle edition is, is that even if you own a laptop you or a computer, you can uh, read that online on your laptop. And uh, this is some meaty stuff, so I yeah, just want to let you know that. So, all right, let's. Uh, without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, uh, lecture number two on The Two Natures in Christ by Martin Chemnitz. With me to the one that is entitled... The Human Nature in the Incarnate Christ, Chapter 3. Again, as background, it's hard for us in our day to remember this, but in the early church, this was the fighting grounds. In our day, if you say to somebody, let me tell you something really radical, Jesus Christ was a human being, a male, They'll yawn. That's not where the fight is in our day. It's whether he was any more than that that's the fight in our day. But it was very different in the early church. The Gnostics were infiltrating Orthodox Christianity. And I'm not going to review all of that, but Gnostic basically was Platonism and said that there were two stuffs in the universe, spiritual stuff and material stuff, and material stuff was by being material polluted. The Christians saw that this would mean that if God the Son were to become incarnate, he'd become polluted by becoming flesh. The Gnostics marketed themselves as the pure spiritual Christianity. You can see this already in 1 John, uh, when John writes, if anybody comes to you and says that Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh, have nothing to do with them. Okay? So, passages that we take for granted in our day were very important in the earliest church, first century. Passages that had to do with that he was born, placenta and all, mess at all, Um, that he hungered, that he thirsted, that he was wearied, Um, all of those that have, that he bled, that he died, all of those things that have to do with his body for the early church, those passages were critical. So that's as your background Uh, to this, to the basic passages. All right. The necessity of believing in the human nature of Christ. The quotations from the fathers there. The scripture declarations. um, In the flesh uh, of Christ, God condemns sin. In the body of his flesh, we're reconciled. We're justified by his blood He laid down his life as a ransom for many, the Son of God born of woman in order to redeem those who were under law. Um, 
He does not blush to call us brothers because he he's, had been, has been a, made a partaker of flesh and blood, and so forth and so forth. He who eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood has eternal life. Um, later on, we'll talk about if that refers to the supper, but for right now, just quote it. Then a section, the true teaching of Scripture. He's going to repeat this thing at the close of this chapter. What is the faith? Okay, then the arguments of the heretics, and that's where I think we should spend a little bit of time. What were the arguments that they brought forth? All right, first one, that Christ assumed not a true and normal human body, but a specter, a phantasm. It seemed to have flesh and bones, but really didn't. If you want to impress your friends and confound your enemies, it's a particular kind of Gnosticism called Docetism. Docetism comes from the Greek root to seem. It looked as if he had a body, but he didn't. He loved us so much that he made it appear as if he could bleed, but he couldn't. For our sakes, he made it look like he could die, but he really couldn't and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. Okay? The incarnation is a matter of appearance. In reality, no such thing was happening. It appeared, says Chemnitz, immediately after the death of the apostles, it seemed wonderful to reason, and the reasons why it seemed wonderful to reason, um, all sorts of couldn't-he-have things, always watch out for those, couldn't-he-have um, performed the work of redemption without the assumption of a true human nature, so forth, all of those. Uh, and Chemnitz answers back, probably so, but we're not interested in speculating. We're interested in what the text says. Uh, that's a good rule of thumb for discussion, especially with those with degrees in philosophy. Um, the question is not what... Think of the law courts. Uh, If some idiot brings in something about a Martian, and it could have been a Martian who actually killed the guy, the judge is going to go apoplectic because that is not the place for the discussion of whether Martians could come down here and do something. They're only interested in the evidence. So... Chemnitz follows along and summarizes on that second page the main points of the arguments. Then at the bottom of the page, his reply, basically the first point. In dealing with this mystery, we ought not dispute the question of what the Son of God in his absolute omnipotence seems to be able to do or what mode of incarnation seems most attractive to our reason. Our faith must turn to what God has revealed, and he means Holy Scripture. Um, And then where the Savior himself clearly refutes this delirium, everything about his walking on water, and they thought it was a phantom, he rejects this. The upper room, the doors being shut, he appears, says to Thomas, come over and touch me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Uh, the prophecy from Isaiah 50, top of page 3, I gave my back to the smiters. Um, 
Paul calls it the body of the flesh in Colossians 1, forget imaginary things. Um, the prophecy of the seed of woman, the son of man, the seed of Abraham. Okay, you'll, you can do that on your own, but there he um, goes after it. And then the purpose by which Satan, for which Satan invents such things. <clears throat> and he very simply says, these sorts of heresies are there to empty the mystery of the redemption for us and to render our hope gone. It is characteristic of the historic Lutheran writings to always link it to our need for a redeemer, a mediator, and that God, in fact, provided that in the Son. This is the basis for the hope, and Satan knows if he can remove the messianic hope, he's got us. Okay? The simple and true meaning of the subverted passages, Romans 8, 3 and Philippians 2, 7 and 8. You can do that on your own. <coughs> Those are the, I guess, well, we should take a look at them. Uh, that's a couple of pages, so we probably should look at uh, the bottom of three. It does not follow that if the Son of God in the Old Testament appeared in the form of a man, but without the true assumption of a human nature, therefore the incarnation itself took place in fantasy. The fact that Christ manifested himself in several places in the Old Testament, uh, the angel of the, some of the angel of the Lord passages, says nothing about what he can do in becoming flesh to redeem us. It says that he could appear in manifest ways in the Old Testament prior to his uh, being conceived in the womb of Mary. But it's a matter here of logic, uh, not particularly of theology, um, a non sequitur. Romans 8, top of page 4b, God sent his son in the likeness of our flesh of sin. Boy, did the Gnostics love that one. The likeness of. And what they did with that, the Manichaeans. Um, Paul is not in this passage, he is not toying with putative fantasies or specters. And then he explains what Paul is claiming and how he knows that he's claiming it, that he, Jesus, became flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, except for sin, everything. Okay? Same thing Hebrews is going to argue. In all ways as we, yet without sin. Again, the background here is St. Anselm's book, Cordeus Homo, Why the God-Man? And to a certain extent, St. Athanasius on the incarnation of the Word. Those are two great, short, relatively short, especially Athanasius, books that are worth considering buying. And put me to the test. You'll be able to understand them. Athanasius, you can understand Always get the translation from St. Vladimir's Press in New York, um, the one that C.S. Lewis calls a galloping translation. Uh, okay, Philippians 2. Huh? Uh, another one that was used badly, dragged in by the Manichaeans, um, as if to mean Christ conducted himself with his outward appearance as a man, but only as a likeness of a man probably do us well to uh, to quote that one incompleto. Uh, give me just a second here. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Just a second. You'll recognize this immediately as soon as you hear it. Uh, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form, the Greek is morphe, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form, the morphe, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, therefore becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is, that he's God, to the glory of God the Father. Classic, classic passage in Philippians 2. What did the Manichaeans and the Gnostics grasp onto? That he was in the likeness. So you can can read the analysis here, top of page 5 on your own, uh, where that's sort of taken apart and disemboweled as it richly uh, deserves. Then Satan's next subterfuge, that Christ had true flesh, but not of the same substance as our flesh. Valentinians, some Anabaptists, basic Gnostic. The pretended reasons for this opinion were specious, quote, that it was somehow not fitting for the divine majesty to assume the same substance with ours. That it was not fitting not fitting that he should take our flesh. And Chemnitz does what this deserves. He says, you don't know squat about what's fitting to the eternal God other than what Scripture tells you. I'll tell you what's fitting is what he did. That's what's fitting. Um, Even a liberal like Karl Broughton has said, there's much too much talk about God apart from Jesus. Even a liberal sees that. Well, you know, here the idea is that you could know apart from Scripture what would be befitting to the glorious God. Well, it certainly wouldn't be to take our flesh. And Chemnitz answers as it should be. That's what he did. That's what he did. Learn what's fitting by what he did. Learn it bass-ackwards. I guess I shouldn't say that into a microphone, but you get the idea. Uh Uh-oh, I'll have to let that one go. Over on six. Next, the arguments as to whether Christ assumed a complete or total human nature. Apollinarius, Apollinaris, um, somehow that the divinity in Christ absorbed or made of no effect a genuine human personality, will, and so forth. Um, And that was rejected rightly by the earliest church as well. Um, Just as an aside, I'll just mention it, but we can talk about it privately if you want to. 
A linked issue here is the so-called peccability of Christ. Again, it's speculative. Could he have sinned? Now, Bible-believing people can differ on that. Missouri, in its dogmatics, has committed to, no, he couldn't, he was God in the flesh. And other people have said, then what was a temptation? Was it just play-acting? Or was he truly tempted? Now, I'm not going to pursue that, but they're linked. But it starts with the speculative question. The definitive answer to that is, the point is, he didn't. Now, do you want to keep speculating? The real point is he didn't. All right, so so what's going on here is, was it a complete human nature? And um, Chemnitz, again, from the verses, talks about the body of Christ, the mind of Christ, the will of Christ, um, and sums it up with passages. You have all the appearances in Scripture that he also was with us in having emotions, will, however you slice the salami that's us, mind. So um, the speculation is false. Okay? Over on 7, the next attack. That Christ's human nature was real and complete, but not subject during the time of his humiliation to infirmities to which our nature is subject. Two arguments. First, because he was separate from sinners, did not know sin, and because he's the Holy One of the saints, verse, therefore he was not subject to our infirmities. Second argument, because the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily in his human nature, Colossians 2.9, Therefore, suffering could not have a place there. All of these have the same form. That is, we know what it is to be the divine God, and then we can deduce what an incarnate Christ could or could not be. Always the same format. Answer from Chemnitz, premise one, you don't know what befits a glorious God like the God of Scripture. Learn it from the bottom up. Learn it from the passages upwards, not from the top down. Again, that's a great rule of thumb when you're in some of these religious arguments that have to do with God. And finally, bottom of seven, that Christ's human nature was utterly absorbed into the deity through the hypostatic union. Therefore, there is in Christ only one nature, the divine. Eutyches. Uh, All of my Reformed brethren imagine that we Lutherans have embraced this, or they joke about it. It's a 500-year-old joke. Uh, Whenever I see R.C. Sproul, he makes the sign of the cross, not the way you're taught thinking, and says, the Monophysite party's arrived, or he could say, the Eutychians are here. And if I'm feeling out of sorts, I'll say, oh yeah, you're really equipped, you being a Nestorian, to find Eutychians. That's a 500-year-old joke. (laughs) Us versus the Calvinists on Christology. So, he, uh, 
He takes that apart, um, that Christ genuinely has two natures. In all of these, he does the passages, and once in a while we'll throw in that the fathers caught this too. That is, we're on the side of the ancient church here, don't call us innovators. But basically it's an argument over passages. And um, what the scripture teaches, and that's what he does at the top of page 8, And then the bottom of page 8 is, again, a summary of what's the true historic position on the humanity of Christ, a one-paragraph thing. Um, One more, more, and then I'll open it up for questions. Don't for too long, follow Chemnitz here, don't for too long get into too many arguments about definitions. This isn't really a theological matter, but... It's a, it's a black hole. If, for instance, debaters know that they if the, they're if they're getting beaten in the debate, they can ask their opponent definitional questions. Why? Well, because it's a black hole. Definitions are funny things. None of them are exhaustive, and you can let the guy take a, a crack at it, and then you can dismember his attempt at a definition, which is relatively easy to do. You'll find throughout Chemnitz's writing, he'll say, all right, I'll do a little of this, as much as we need, but you can tell from his writing itself, I'm just going to do this in a rough and ready way, uh, just enough that we need it so we can go on to what the passages say. So remember that in discussion too. Definition stuff, give it a little time, but realize if, if your opponent really knows what he's doing, He's um, setting a trap, and you can easily walk into it. No matter what definition you give, he's got you. All right, let me throw it open for questions. As I said, the key thing here that Chemnitz returns to throughout the chapter is, this is another attempt by Satan to remove your hope. He sees that the basics of justification are theological, not moral. When Satan really wants to go after us, he's going to try to destroy the messianic line and the messianic promise. That's where the marbles are, whether we know it or not. So you you just don't have in this him also including all those that say, well, I think that it's immoral for a man to suffer for others. We'll leave that to the end where it belongs, you know, footnote 32. But if you want to bring it up later, fine. But he's not centering on that at all. Okay, Alice. A question about sin. You said, as we've been taught, uh, Christ took on the form of a man and was without sin. But he had the nature of a man, and nature of a man is sin. No. Okay. That's what I want. <laughs> here's, here's, here's how they said it. Because this came up in the formula, Concord. If that's true, that to be human is to be a sinner, think about it. No incarnation. So what you find in the book of Concord is the phrase, all those who are conceived in the normal way It's in the formula. Um, 
because somebody tried that. Lutheran tried that. It was one of the, one of our fights. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, uh, I, early on you made the point that uh, there's some disagreement on whether Christ actually could sin or not, could or or could could not. Yes. If you go back to Adam, because Christ is called the second Adam at times. Uh, if you go back to Adam, could you say that? He was created without sin, but did sin. Uh huh. I don't know. Can he you was. There have been there have been three human beings in the history of the race with free will toward things heavenly. Total. Mm-hmm. That's it. He really was free, or to use Doctor Schaefer's phrase, he wasn't pre-programmed to fall. And leave it to the Reformed as to how that, let them get into their own mess on that. And the linguistics are infralapsarian and supralapsarian Calvinism. Let them do that. A question about the usage of Jesus and the usage of Christ. Uh In the Bible. Christ is not his last name. There you go. How about Christ Jesus? <laughs> anyway, it seems to me that in the Gospels it refers to him as Jesus, but I read in Corinthians, it's usually Christ that we hear about there, usually. Yeah, and, and many times you find when you read the books of the exegetes, there's rationale for almost every time they use what they use. Um, Paul will say Christ Jesus, and there's usually the, in the context you can see why he puts it that way. Um, with, in the case of the Gospels, you find that in many cases, um, it's sort of selected or formed by the audience to whom they write. There's a rationale for it. If Luke is writing to Greeks, if uh, Matthew is writing to Jews, if Mark is writing to Romans, there's a wonderful rationale for how they select their language with regard to Jesus of Nazareth. Fascinating stuff. Um, Somebody else want to add something to that? That, In general, I think that's right. Um, Again, your basic New Testament course, Jesus, Yeshua, um, Hebrew names had meanings, the Lord is salvation or the salvation of the Lord, Yeshua, um, Christ, the uh, the rendering into Greek of the Hebrew for Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. It's an office, not a last name. Jesus, who is the Christ, the promised Messiah of Israel, um, so forth. Maybe somebody else can add something to that. All right, we're going to pause right there and take our first and really only break. Uh, If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back.
Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Arctic. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm going to give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Quando. We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. I'm off key and singing when I shouldn't be. Uh, warning. I, I have no warnings to warn you about today during the warning section of our warning time. This is too tired. 
Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if uh, all of the doom and gloom uh, uh, inflation that we're expecting uh, from Glenn Beck occurs, well, then we'll just have to figure out how to deal with that when the time comes. But (laughs) I don't know why I'm saying that. I am in just – I'm tired. Okay. (laughs) Hey, I I hope he's wrong. I just – I really do. (laughs) I am so off track. Anyway – Go to our website, pick a button, fill it out, support us financially, because we got to pay our bills if we want to continue bringing this outreach to you. That's just how it works. You know, <laughs> anyway, um, here's the rest of the lecture from uh, uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on uh, Martin Chemnitz's The Two Natures in Christ. I, I'm, I've got to go find something else to do. Anyway, here we go. Okay. Questions? Dave? Yeah, to inject a little humor, the uh, Jesus' middle initial is not H either. Uh, I grew up around people who were constantly uh, oh, yeah. saying that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, I wondered if you could comment the absolute necessity of believing in, in Jesus' humanity. And this last quote at the last page where uh, Kim says that he might be made the victim for us. Absolutely. Um, if, if you... It seems to me that the dualism is inherent in the, what a, is? dualism yes. is inherent in a lot of these uh, yes. other positions. I wondered if you could comment about the role of dualism back then and now, and how that affects your view of Christ. Yeah, it really is common uh, in every century. The names change. Dualism is basically the claim that the universe is made up of two stuffs, and usually they're material stuff and spirit stuff. And that somehow these can't coalesce or meet. They're separate stuffs. Lutherans hate this stuff. And we think there's good rationale for hating it. Um, We're way on the side of Jesus having two natures. Drink this for the forgiveness of sins. Eat this for the forgiveness of sins. We're way on the other side of that. But Chemnitz is really right when you talk about... uh, this business of in order that he might become the victim in our stead. That's basically Athanasius and, and uh, Anselm, why an incarnation. Uh, if you'd like a, a short one too, you've probably read it before, uh, Lewis's The Case for Christianity, the chapter on the grand miracle. Marvelous chapter, the grand miracle. Uh, very short, but is 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 always the case with Lewis. Really, really powerful and lucid. You might look at that in Mere Christianity. Um, so anyway, Chemnitz is always going to tie it to that. In order that he might die for us. In order that he might... Well, and, and just think of some of the passages. Think of Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
I mean, you ask Jesus what he's for or why he's come, and he is always going to answer in terms of dying, not in terms of teaching. Does he teach? Sure. But if you ask him, well, basically, why are you here? He answers to die. To die. That is a strange vocation. But he answers that way again and again and again. Good question. Yes. Why does he say ransom for many rather than for all? Um, it's a that's a good question, um, and I'll I'll defer to the exegetes there. The Greek panta or all you will find to the consternation of many of the reformed in Romans five. The one man, the one Adam, for in, in that one man's disobedience, the all were made guilty. And then in the second man's obedience, the all were declared righteous. Um, there's the other scripture to talk to uh, a passage like this. But let me ask my uh, superiors at the college, uh, as long as I quote Mark 10.45, Remember, Lutherans aren't universalists. That is, we believe that some actually will be condemned at the end. We just take the unusual position that it has to do with theology more than it has to do with morals. That is, they rejected the antidote. Some will reject the antidote to the very end. Most Christian denominations will talk in terms of your immorality And that, Lutherans will say, is just a confirming thing. But the real one that did it was you rejected the antidote. So Lutherans believe that some will be lost. But it's theological, not primarily moral. That's that's worth knowing. Good question, though. I'll try to remember to talk to my, my betters on that. Uh, I have a, a question about the uh, first part of the conclusion down here. On the last page? On the last page, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the idea that the uh, Christ is joined in perpetual union. Yes. That uh, he still has a body. That he still has a body yep. is something that, I hadn't considered before. Yes, absolutely. And not only his appearance to Thomas after the resurrection, not just that, but if he is so kind, you'll be able to ask to see the wounds. They'll still be there. Rod, can I follow up with this it says, thus he willingly and without imperfection assumed at the time of his humiliation. So it's kind of a follow-up. Um, he assumed imperfection at the time of his humiliation to be made um, the victim for us all. The way Luther says it is, he didn't just substitute for us on the cross. He began his some substitution in the womb. His whole life was a life lived for us as well as his death being a death for us. The whole thing was substitutionary. And later on in the book, we're going to talk about what you probably did in catechism from the Apostles' Creed, the levels of his humiliation. 
conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. Or I, Strike that last one. Yes, yes. Yeah, Luther's answer is his, it was from the beginning he was substituting for us, his life and his death. All of Christianity's substitution. If I get five minutes with an unbeliever at a cocktail party, I'm going to go somehow for the depth of sin and I'm going to talk about mine, not his. I'm going to do it autobiographically. And I'm going to get to substitution as quickly as I can. As I'll bet you nine times out of ten, he thinks that Christianity is basically moral revolution and, God help us, transformation. Ick. Christianity is about rescue of immorals. Me. And I know from the Bible, you. (laughs) Me, I know by experience. I know from the Bible, you. (laughs) All of Christianity is about rescue of immorals. Okay, and Chemnitz is convinced from the passages, this is the machinery of it. Hmm? Brad. Yeah, Dr. Rosenblatt. uh, If you could explain that 500-year-old joke, uh, especially you're talking about between you and uh, and R.C. Sproul. Very quickly. Okay. Very quickly. There are certain moves you can make in Christology, and it's a finite set. Luther took his chances walking along the edge of the Eutychian heresy. Calvin took his chances walking along the edge of the Nestorian heresy. Now, basically, you can look those up on your own. Nestorianism says that he was true God, true man, and they were in watertight compartments. The question is whether he was schizoid, Sybil, a multi-personality. Calvin and his followers take their chances being closer to that. Luther and Lutherans have taken their chances with the Eutychian heresy. What's that? (coughs) Well, that it's sort of like a chemical experiment that you can't undo. That is, if you imagine a circle... The the human and the divine natures in Jesus are in very, very close proximity. And the charge and the reason the Eutychians were thrown out is that when the reaction occurred, the chemical reaction, you had a Jesus that was made of some third substance that was neither still God nor still man, but he was composed of what you might call God-man. Result, no savior. So those are the heresies. Luther was not a Eutychian, a Monophysite. R.C.'s wrong. Um, And Calvin was not a Nestorian. But they took their chances in Christology at different places. Uh, And this links, of course, with the Supper, but we won't go into that. Later on, we'll go into that, how it links with the Supper. All right, enough for the day. Thanks for your attention.
Well, there you have it. There wasn't much left of the lecture, but you know, 10, more, 10, 11 more minutes. All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You know that we need your support. Visit our website, fill out all that kind of stuff. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of uh, Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.